In this episode, we're going to answer the question of, should Christians celebrate the Sabbath? We're also going to look at what the Bible says about whether the day begins at sunrise or at sunset, whether the Sabbath is Saturday, Sunday, based on the lunar cycle, or maybe it's something else. And we're also going to look at strategies on how to get the most out of spending one day out of the week with God. What's up, guys? My name is Tudor Alexander, and I'm your host for the Dance of Life podcast on this wonderful day. Thanks so much for joining me. You know, one of the goals that I have with this podcast is to help you live a better Christian life. And probably the most significant thing that has made a difference in my walk with the Lord has been learning to practice and dedicate one day out of the week to spending time with Him, whether that's through prayer, reading the the Word, going out in nature, uh, you know, just really focusing on my relationship with God. That's been huge for my growth spiritually and emotionally and mentally and everything else. I mean, having that day of rest where we're completely focused on godly things, or at least we try to, I can't say we're completely focused, but we try to, that's been pretty monumental. So I want to share that with you, but this topic of the Sabbath is actually pretty controversial. Uh, A lot of people are in the camp that maybe they think they don't have to observe the Sabbath. It's a thing of the past. It's a Jewish thing, whatever else. And some people who celebrate it become legalist about it where, you know, you have to celebrate it and you have to do it this, it's on Saturday, it's on Sunday, it's on, you know, whatever else, right? So there is a lot of confusion with this topic, and I've done my fair share of research to prepare this talk for you. So we're going to do a very deep study, very comprehensive study. We're going to answer all those questions that I just listed at the beginning, but we're going to do it through the Word. We're going to do it through a lot of study in the Word. We're going to do it through archaeology, through history, because there is there has been a lot of confusion with this topic. It's also been a lot of history, right? I mean, Jesus lived 2,000 years ago, so a lot has happened in 2,000 years. So hopefully we can clear that up and encourage you, empower you, and hopefully show you something new today. A couple of quick disclaimers before we jump into it. I am not a Seventh-day Adventist. I don't belong to any denomination. I do agree with them in some things about the Sabbath, but even Seventh-day Adventists, if you're watching this, there's going to be some things we'll cover that probably you haven't been taught or learned people who are Messianic, who celebrate the Sabbath. Uh, We're going to be covering a lot of things to look at that because, again, it's just, it's not as easy as some people think. This is a very complicated topic, unfortunately, uh, because man has made it complicated. But, you know, the Sabbath is a gift, and my goal is to share that with you today. It's important also to remember we're not saved by observing the Sabbath. The Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments. We do show our love for Christ by observing the commandments and doing our best to try to practice them, right? But we're under grace, and the beauty of grace is that we can make mistakes, we can practice imperfectly without being condemned. However, the law doesn't go away, and that's really something to remember. We're going to reiterate that throughout this episode. It's, you know, people seem to always get into one or the other, whether it's I don't have to obey the law anymore, or you got to obey the law to be saved, and it's it's neither of those. You know, this is the narrow road that Christ talked about, which is You're under grace, but the law doesn't go away. We do our best to show our love for God by trying to keep the the Ten Commandments, honoring God, honoring our neighbors. That's what it's about. So this episode is designed to help you do more of that (laughs) through the Sabbath, obviously, because I do believe people should keep the Sabbath. Christians should keep the Sabbath. But we're going to look at exactly why, and we're going to look at all the nuances and empower you so that you are empowered for this conversation and you can make a more conscious decision about this, 
even if you're already celebrating the Sabbath or maybe you think the day of rest is on Sunday, hopefully you'll learn differently that it's not and why it's not and why it's important to understand that it's not. But why is this important in general is that we're living in the end times. Now, I'm going to have a whole series dedicated to the end times because that's a massive topic. (laughs) That is a huge topic, very popular obviously as well, but that's something that you have to do a lot of research on. So I'm currently compiling a series that I want to do as of the time of this video, obviously. So maybe if you're watching it, go check it out, see if the series is published. But to to kind of, you know, do a, a summary of that, which is we're living in the end times. And one of the things that we're told about in the end times is that there will be a one world religion. There will be a way that people are moved into a worship situation through the mark of the beast. We we know that. Okay, now what the mark is, what is who is the beast, what is the beast, that's up for debate, right? And certainly there are many theories. And But the, the, the reality is that there will be a one-world system, and that system will demand worship in some way. Now, I want to explore that because already we have a lot of things happening in the world. The Pope is trying to unite the, the world religions. Uh, climate change, you know, you've got the Ten Climate Commandments recently with COP27 and them slamming the Ten Commandments and breaking them on Mount Sinai. It wasn't really the real Mount Sinai, but imagine what an affront to God that is. I mean, that just blows my mind. But this is the world we live in. You know, climate change, climate activism, social justice, you know, pluralism, that everybody's right, everybody's worshiping the same God, so let's just have one unified, you know, temple area, the Abrahamic family house. I mean, it's not a far stretch to believe that the religions will find some commonality. And if you know anything about the Hegelian dialectic of problem, reaction, solution, what we're witnessing is a problem, which is climate change, which is, you know, this push for social justice and climate justice. We're witnessing the problem and they're making it a big problem. Why? So that the solution can can come in, which what is the solution? Well, we all have the same God. You know, we should all have the same religion. We all have the same principles. And they already issued 10 climate commandments at this COP27. So these aren't things that are my ideas. They're not, you know, hypotheticals. They're happening in the world right now. And we as Christians have to be sharp. If your attention is on the worldly things, you're not going to pick these things up and you will be deceived. So my goal is to empower you with a very deep study on this topic so that you aren't deceived in the days to come. Now, I don't know what the mark of the beast is, but I want to go that go over that with you as we get started in this study to get you to think. I don't know what it is. The Seventh-day Adventists believe that there's going to be a coming Sunday law. I think it's a possibility. I'm not sure 100%, but it's a possibility. And I want us to look at the mark of the beast and see why it's not something physical. Whatever it's going to be, it's not something physical. Now, it can be enforced with physical means, like microchips and, you know, RFID, whatever, you know, things, but it's not something physical. The mark is a spiritual thing. It has to do with what you think and what's in your heart and what you do. So let's look at what the Word says about that. And, of course, we're going to start with Revelation 13, right where the mark is discussed, Revelation chapter 13, verses 16 through 18. So, It goes, also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. So this right away gives us a very important detail, which is the right hand and the forehead. Now, at first, people think 
you know, this is just like a detail of how the physical manifestation is going to come around. That's why you see all these people talking about the mark being various chips and things that people are inserting into their bodies. And again, not I don't doubt that it, the the mark, the, the real mark, the future spiritual reality will be enforced with some physical means. We live in a more controlled society now than ever before, especially with digital money, blockchain, and all these things. But does that mean that the mark itself will be physical? And the answer is no, because the Bible is very clear that these things that it's saying with the right hand, the forehead, they're spiritual realities. Remember, Revelation is a, it's apocryphal. It's a spiritual symbolic book. Everything in Revelation is about spiritual realities that are coming to play. Does that mean they'll have physical manifestations? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that we should be looking for the physical. Okay, this is very, this is where your discernment has to kick up a notch. So let's look at what the Bible has to say about the head and the hands. If we look at Exodus 13, verse 9, And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. So what is it saying here? Well, it's saying remember what God did for you. The hands represent action. People are, I mean, even today we work with our hands, but people were working with their hands, especially the right hand. That was like the, the symbol of power. And that's used throughout the Bible. But the hands represent action. And between your eyes is where your mind is. It's what you, what's, on your, what's on your mind, literally what you're thinking of, what you believe. And if we go on, there's, there's a lot of verses here, but I want you to, to see the pattern. Exodus 13, verses 15 through 16. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrificed to the Lord all the males that, the, that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. Look at this, verse 16. It shall be as a mark on your hand or, on front, or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. What is the mark in this particular discussion? The mark is what they're doing with the firstborn. They're redeeming them. It's, it's a custom. It's, it, they're redeeming the firstborn. They're consecrating it to the Lord because as a remembering of the final plague of, of Passover, where God killed all the firstborn of Egypt. That was the ultimate, you know, destruction. And it made Pharaoh break. So, this is a custom that the mark is referring to the custom, the spiritual belief that they have about redeeming the firstborn, which again, it's a type for what we, how we are redeemed in, in Christ. But again, the mark is a spiritual thing. If we continue to Exodus 28, verses 36 through 38, it says, You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. Here it is, verse 38. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. So this is about the high priest. Aaron is the high priest, and you, they have a physical reality, which is a plate of gold, holy to the Lord. It's a mark right? It's a physical thing that's on his forehead. But what is it supposed to signify, right? He's being consecrated to the Lord. It's a spiritual reality. Now compare this to all the times in Revelation where it talks about being sealed by God or having the seal of God on people's foreheads. Let's take a look. Revelation 7 verse 3. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God 
on their foreheads. See, it, it could have just left that part out, which is very interesting. So there's a reason why, because this is not about, you know, the angels are going to come down and put a little mark on your forehead, like it's Ash Wednesday or something. No, it's, it's forehead represents your mind. It's what you think. Being sealed is people believing the gospel. Okay, let's look at Revelation 9, verse 4. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So now we see the contrast. Mark of the beast, seal of God. Forehead, forehead. Hmm, interesting, right? Revelation 14, verse 1. Then I looked and behold, on the Mount Zion stood the Lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name on and his father's name written on their foreheads. So again, forehead versus mark of the beast, seal of God. Everything that Satan does is trying to counterfeit God. Remember that. This is all going to come, it's all going to tie together. Revelation 22, 4. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. So again, there's this precedent of at the end of time, people who are, who are going to be saved, who are alive, they have the seal of God on their foreheads. Why? Because they believe the true gospel. It's what they believe and think. Okay? That's the people who end up taking the mark of the beast reject the gospel. That's what it's about. It's not about, oh, you put a chip in your hand, now you're not saved. You cannot lose your salvation from something physically happening to you. That's the nonsense of this whole physical mark of the beast. But let's keep going. Deuteronomy 6, verse 8. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. Deuteronomy 10, 16. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. Now what is, the, I picked this one, it's a little different than the frontlets in your eyes and, and hands. Why did I pick this one? Well, because it's obviously, and we don't have foreskin around our heart that we can circumcise. So what's this talking about? Well, it's, it's figurative, it's symbolic. Circumcision was a type for being born again. That's the whole point. Being circumcised was a type for what happened internally, which is the, the covering of your heart was being taken away so you could have a heart of flesh. No longer a heart of stone, a heart of flesh. And so circumcised there, right now, as early as Deuteronomy, you can see the language for the being born again and the typology already being created. So this is all symbolic. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 8. You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land that you are strong over your possession. So he's, God is telling them, do this so that you can succeed, okay? And if we go down to 18, verse 18, you shall therefore lay up these words of mine, through all this that I just told you, in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. So here we go, all in one sentence. In your heart, in your soul, and bind them as a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes. So you can't bind words in your heart, not physically, right? You bind them spiritually. That's what this is about. Now, last but not least, we're going to look at Revelation 17, 5 with Mystery Babylon. And on her forehead was written a name of Mystery Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Where was the name written? It was written on her forehead. And so I hope you can see from all of these verses that we just looked at, that when you see something like it's written on the forehead or having 
a, a sign on your hand, a sign on your forehead, or a frontless between your eyes, or a mark. These things are talking about spiritual realities. It's very clear. So the question is, if all of these verses are talking about spiritual realities, then what is Revelation talking about? Is it talking about some physical chip that's going to come, or maybe a jab that's going to change your DNA, or something like that that's you know, make you not be saved anymore? That's not at all what it's talking about. Okay, so you have to reject that. You have to reject this physical reality because the devil is always pulling people to look at the physical world so they so they don't have discernment. Okay, so they so all these things that are happening in the spiritual reality that are changing are going beyond their vision, so they can't see what's coming. The devil dangles the physical world as a carrot in front of you and and tries to scare you or you know seduce you or one way or the other into believing these physical things. They're just you know, again, these things could manifest as a way to enforce the mark, but the mark is about worship. The mark is about what you believe and what you do. Now, it's very important that the mark in Revelation 13 says both the hand or the forehead. What does that mean? That means that people are either going to believe, right? They're going to have a change of heart about something and will make them worship the beast. Or that they're going to do it, even though they don't really believe, just so that they can get the benefit of buying and selling and not be ostracized from society. So you're going to have those two people that are going to be doing that. Now, I want to respond really quick to this idea that the original language in Greek says sharagma, the word sharagma for the mar- for the mark. So if you look in the Strong's Concordance, and of course, you know, Strong's is not perfect, but oh, let me just pull it up here. Revelation 13 calls it all the great mark. Mark. So if we look at it, the word is sharagma. And sharagma is, you know, it's it's a word that's a physical mark, like a scratch or etching. And so the so the response is this, like, oh, we'll see, the original language says that it's a physical mark. But I want you to use good exegesis here. Okay, what's the context? Okay, first off, there's a lot of things in, in Revelation by that logic. This is poor exegesis, guys, that by that logic, you could say, well, shouldn't we see like a red dragon floating around the air in the end of times? Shouldn't we see a woman riding a beast with seven heads? I mean, that's not at all what Revelation is about. These these are symbols that are being used to convey much greater spiritual truths. And so, of course, yeah, it's, it's the vision that he saw where people marked on their forehead with a physical mark in the vision. But that doesn't mean that that translates to reality. In the vision, you see things that represent reality. So we have to reject that just because the original language uses the word sharagma, which is a physical mark, that that means anything. Again, the context. Look at the context of Revelation being an apocryphal book, or not apocryphal, but apocalyptic literature. And that it's symbolic, that it's, you know, it's a vision. Okay, and look at all the context of the verses we looked at throughout the Bible talking about having beliefs as being frontless between your eyes or a sign on your hand or as a mark between you and God. Even the Sabbath, we'll see later in one of the verses, it's a sign between God and his people. Okay, so it's obvious that what we're dealing with here is something spiritual. So let's let's take a look at some other things. Daniel 7.25, this is again, just to make you think, I'm not 100% sure what the mark of the beast is, but again, make you think. So far, we've realized that this is a spiritual reality, not a physical one. 
In Daniel 7, verse 25, he says, He shall speak words against the Most High. This is talking about you know, the beast, the, the end time antichrist. And shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change times and the law. Now, this is a very interesting thing that not, not a lot of people realize. And again, that's why Daniel is so important because Daniel and Revelation are, are very parallel. But speaking of the one who is to come, right, the, the final system with the Antichrist power, why would they include that? Why would he include that detail? Changing the times and the law. That's a very obscure detail because, first off, every emperor, every king, every power always changes the laws. They always have their own laws about certain things and ordinances. They have a ton of different ordinances. So obviously that's not, you know, he wouldn't just say like a a Captain Obvious type of statement. He must be referring to something specific. And so keep that in your mind, because if he's going to mention that in his prophecy, it must be talking about a very specific time and law situation. You know, every, again, every king comes into power, they change the law. But to mention this, it would mean that it's some other, something specific is being mentioned. Okay. If we look at Exodus 20, verse 11, it tells us something very important. Okay. And it tells us the reason why God has power over the law. For in six days, the Lord created, made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. So, As we get into this topic, guys, I want you to see that the reason there is a law is because there's a lawgiver. We all know that. And the lawgiver has power. That's really important. Because if the lawgiver had no power, then the law would be powerless. The reason we obey God is because he's the creator, fundamentally. Of course, he loves us. We love him. We do our best. But God is the creator. He's the master over everything. You know, when a cop pulls you over, you obey a cop because he has a gun. He has the right to kill you if things get out of hand. And so the law has power because it has power. It has a physical consequence. And so when the Antichrist power changes the time and law, he's trying to counterfeit God by creating a situation of obedience through worship. This is very important. We know that Satan wants to counterfeit God. He wants to be God. He obtained worship in the Garden of Eden, right? through getting Adam and Eve to obey him instead of the Lord. And so what's to say, you know, if you look at history, there's no, there's nothing that's been different. It's going to be the same thing in the end of days. And we're living in that. There's going to come a time when there will be a one world religion. There will be some way that you will be forced between a decision of buying and selling or paying allegiance to the system in a spiritual way where either you believe it or you're just doing it just to avoid the consequences. There will be that reality. Now, it's very interesting that Daniel says that he'll change the times and laws, but when, again, every empire changes times and laws in some sense, they always have their own calendars. So that's a very interesting detail. And I think that if we can combine all these conclusions, what do we get? Well, first off, the the mark of the beast is not something spiritual. We know that. It's not a chip, it's not a blockchain, it's not a tattoo, it's not any of this stuff. It's not a jib-jab. It's having to do with your actions and your heart, the state of your heart. Remember Matthew 15, 11, what the Lord said. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what, go, what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. It's always been about the state of your heart. 
it's not been about these physical things. Okay, that's the devil's carrot that he's trying to distract people so they aren't aware of the spiritual changes that are happening, so they, they don't have discernment. Nobody can force you into the mark. Nobody can force you to lose your salvation. It's going to be something that happens to people. Now, some people are going to argue, well, you can choose. I'm going to argue because I have a series on this. I believe in election. I believe in predestination. I believe that the mark of the beast is just Satan's way of counterfeiting the seal of God, which is obvious to me. And I think it's obvious if you read Revelation, if you read all these other scriptures that we talked about, Satan is trying to counterfeit what God is doing. So he's going to mark his people, which were never saved from the beginning of time. And those who are written in the book before the foundation of the world, God's elect, the people that Jesus came to save and to atone for, those people will get the seal of God. The ones who are still alive, obviously, during the last few years and the last few moments, those people will get the seal of God. But that's because they believe the gospel. Okay. The ones who have the mark of the beast or who will get it, who will take it gladly or who will do it because they don't want to be uncomfortable, those people were probably never saved to begin with. Because if you believe in election, the only way to explain, or I should say the best way to explain the mark of the beast is as a counterfeit attempt to copy God. And that's what the devil is doing. So it's not a question of a physical thing. It's a state of heart. And it's going to be about worship and actions. So how are people going to worship? How are they going to have various actions or beliefs? Well, has there, the question is, has there been forced worship in the past? And the answer is yes. Now, I'm going, to, I'm going to link a ton of resources in this episode on the history of Sunday Laws, but let's just go through a couple of them. I'm not going to go too in-depth with these because you can check them out for yourself. But starting in 321 AD, we're going to get more into this one later. But Constantine decreed the new week with Sunday as the first day of the week, and Sunday was mandated as the day of worship and rest. Then later in 380 and 386 AD, Theodosius, who was basically his successor, made a Sunday law. So he made it even, you know, more strict and basically made it to where Roman Catholicism was mandatory. And Christians were persecuted all along this. If you weren't, you know, observing Sunday, you were cast out. You had consequences. Okay, then skip ahead a little bit to 386 to 469, the next century later, basically. There were seven Sunday laws that were regu- that were created to regulate worship and rest. So seven laws were created in that period of time. So if you look from 321 AD to almost 500 AD, there were several laws that were created to regulate how people worshiped on Sunday. Then if you look at the Middle Ages, after the papacy got full control in the 6th century, you had the Inquisition. The Inquisition killed, I don't know how many, it's hard to estimate, but Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Christians and innocent people. Most of them were Sabbath keepers. If you were keeping the Sabbath, you were found a heretic. And a good example of that is the Waldenses. The Waldenses were a group of Christians that were persecuted by the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Church killed lots of people during the Inquisition, and many of them were Christians. Fast forward, 1888, in the United States, there was the first attempted a Sunday legislation. And you can read about that. It's from Alonzo T. Jones. He was the senator. I posted the transcript, but that was just a little over 100 and probably almost 50 years ago. That was 
to, to make and demanding a day of rest and worship on Sunday with consequences if you didn't. And, you know, we look at the modern day, we look at the Green Sunday movement. That's you just Google Green Sunday movement and see what happens. It's this push for a secular climate activism. We need a, we need a day of rest. We can all unite around Sunday because Sunday is just the day of rest. And it's slowly being programmed into people's minds that this is the day you rest, that we all need rest. And it's using a half-truth, which is what, what Satan loves to do, that, yeah, we're stressed and, oh, gosh, everybody's stressed from their modern work lives and we need to rest. It's true. We do. This is, you know, Babylon hasn't changed. Egypt hasn't changed. We have people who are working 24-7. That's why God gave us a day of rest, to remember that he provides for us. But this COP27, the Ten Climate Commandments, the Green Sunday Movement, a secular day of rest, they've been pushing this for a while, and it's all slowly coming together. Problem, reaction, solution. you got to remember that. We're living through the largest Hegelian dialectic ever that's going to lead the world into a one-world religion and accepting the beast. So you have to be very discerning. If you look at Exodus 31, verse 13, it's about being about the Sabbath being a sign. You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you should keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. This applies to us today as Christians as well. And that's why Christ said that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to make it even more meaningful. That's what the Sabbath is about, to know that the Lord is the one who's sanctifying us, the one who saved us. You know, for the Jews, it was just, oh, you, you saved us from Egypt. And yeah, that was a big deal. Look how much they forgot. Within a generation or two, they already forgot. For us, the Sabbath is remembering that God and Christ is sanctifying us, making us holy to be able to stand righteous in front of God to be free from judgment and to be free to live under grace. So this is just as applicable. Exodus 31, 13 is just as applicable to today as a Christian as it was thousands of years ago to Moses. Now the thing is, I want you to notice is above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Above all, above everything, this is the most important thing to me. Keep the Sabbath. And we're going to keep going through word after word to see how this is very important to God. And the whole idea that you shouldn't celebrate the Sabbath, that you don't need to anymore as a Christian, that's a deception. It's a deception designed to move you into Sunday worship. But remember that Satan has a desire to counterfeit everything, and the occultists believe that Lucifer is the Savior. Crazy to think, but that's what they believe. They believe he's the one that brings them the light and who is their God, basically. And so if that's the case, he has to have his own day, too. He has to have the day that solves all these, you know, tensions in the world of stress and conflict. So he's going to provide a day for us to rest, which is Sunday, the venerable day of the sun. And so you have to keep all this in mind. It sounds crazy, and we're going to look at history and archaeology and, and biblical proof as to why this is all true. So the first question that we had is, should Christians celebrate the Sabbath? Was it only something the Jews, you know, had to celebrate? I thought it was only Hebrews. You know, Christians were freed from that. We don't have to do that. Well, not so much. Let's take a look at some things. So established, the Sabbath was established at the creation. That's first and foremost. If we look in Genesis 2, verse 3, 
So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from his work that he had done in creation. So God himself rested on the seventh day. That should be pretty profound for us. Of course, Adam and Eve rested with him, so they observed the Sabbath. And if you look in Genesis 7, where he's talking to Noah, for in seven days I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. So he's telling Noah, he's warning him, hey, in seven days the flood's going to come. But isn't that interesting that the word, or the time period is seven? It could have been, hey, in 12 days, or it could have been 11 days, but he chose seven. The pattern of seven is very important to God. There's always seven days. And so you wonder, there's no explicit writing in the Bible that Noah celebrated the Sabbath, but it's probably likely that that was continued through the generations of Adam, the righteous ones. Cain, obviously they didn't, maybe not, but we know that Cain was a rebellious house. But through Adam, you had Seth, you know, you had all the Enoch and Noah, that were righteous in God's eyes. And so most likely they celebrated the Sabbath. And I'm willing to think that even this verse here where he says in seven days probably was from Sabbath to Sabbath, right? Or first day first day of the week from Sabbath. It had to be somewhere around there, my guess. But again, there's no proof for that specific thing. Now, if we keep going to Genesis 26 to Abraham, in verse four, he's talking actually about Isaac, or to Isaac, I believe. He's talking about Abraham. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give you give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Now, let me ask you this. If God sanctified the seventh day at the beginning of creation, this is one of the first things we read about. It's the law of the universe that time proceeds in every seven days because God rested on the seventh day. The creator of the universe took the time to rest so, so that he would set the precedent for the rest of the time that we have forever. It's in seven-day cycles. If that's a law of the universe, do you think that Abraham, according to this verse, knew about that law and kept it to be able to please God? Of course he did. Of course he did. So we can just keep going on with these because there's so much really to learn and and ultimately they they give us very big clues about our walks today as Christians. But Exodus 5 verse 4, the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many and you make them rest from their burdens. Isn't that interesting? This is before before the Exodus, before Mount Sinai. And there's a great resource on this talk, which I'll link, which is, I believe it's called the Sabbath before Sinai. You'll see plenty of evidence there as well. But look at, look at this word in Exodus 5.5. 5. The word rest is Shabbat. So it's already, the, the types and shadows are already there. And of course, this was at the beginning of creation. But obviously it was lost along the way, then they regained it, then they lost it again in the Babylonian exile, then they regained it. So It's been under attack since the beginning of creation. Let's look at Exodus 16, verses 23 through 30. A couple verses here. And he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. This is before Mount Sinai. Bake what you shall bake, and boil what you shall boil, and all that is left over 
lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning, and Moses commanded them, and it did not stink. This is the manna that drops from heaven. And there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is the Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. So isn't that interesting? Let's keep going. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Well, look what God says. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? So God is equating the day of rest, right? People are breaking the day of rest. They, they, they aren't, they're not trusting in God to provide for them. And they're going out to find manna in the field. There is none. He's equating the day of rest with my commandments and my laws. Remember when he talked about Abraham keeping his commandments and his laws? Same, same verbiage. So, yeah, Abraham knew about the Sabbath and he kept the Sabbath. See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. This is so important to remember. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. So let's talk about this really quick. The manna in the wilderness. This was before Mount Sinai. Again, types and shadows. There was God was already talking about the Sabbath. Of course, he talked about it from the beginning of time. But this was not something that came up suddenly on Mount Sinai when the Ten Commandments were given. The Ten Commandments have always existed. Just because they were written in stone physically on Sinai doesn't mean that they suddenly appeared before. No, they're written, they're God's character. They're written into stone before they were written in the stone, if that makes any sense. But this is very profound because first off, what do we know about Jesus? He's the bread of life. In fact, this whole this whole journey with manna in the wilderness was on purpose to typify Jesus as the bread of life when he came in his incarnation. So why that's important is, again, Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. The Sabbath is our way of remembering that God provides the bread of life through Christ. Just as the Israelites had a physical thing. It's like a child. You're teaching a child from an early age. You got to teach them physical things before they can understand spiritual symbolic things. God is raising up his people slowly and surely through type after type after shadow so that when Christ arrives, it's like, oh, he's like that, but way better. That's what a type is. It's something that compares but falls short of at the same time. The whole point is that Christ is the bread of life, and through him we have rest. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. And this was typified in the journey of the through the wilderness, through them having to rest. That was a, a foreign concept back then, the idea of resting and, and God will provide for you. No foreign God ever provided for their people. That was the sign between, that's the whole point of it. This is a sign between God and his people. That's what's unique to God. He can provide. He'll take care of you. No other God can do that. And that was the whole point. But these were physical things that happened. And again, they didn't change people's hearts. It was about changing people's hearts that God cared about. But he's showing them physical things so that when the future spiritual reality comes in, it's like, oh, okay, I understand what that is. So that's why all these things are so important. First off, they show us that the law was, even though it was given on Sinai, it always existed. Okay, the law is transcendent. It's God's character. God lives forever. Therefore, the law 
has always existed. Okay, so the law has been around forever. All the patriarchs of the Bible, they all observe the Sabbath. It was part of, even before Sinai. Abraham observed the Sabbath. Adam observed the Sabbath. Noah most likely observed the Sabbath. Okay, and again, these things are fulfilled in Christ. We have a much more fulfilling joy that we can partake in as Christians today in the modern world with the full revelation of Scripture than, you know, the Jews did 3,000, 4,000 years ago or whatever it was, where they didn't get it yet. They didn't understand what grace was. There was no precedent for grace. They had to go through the motions so they could learn. We have the luxury of looking back on that and saying, wow, I get it. It's about a change of heart. It's about a spiritual relationship, which, you know, that's a luxury. So conclusion is the law was always around, okay? As Christians, we have to obey the moral law. Now, let's talk about that for a second. So in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, Christ says, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So he's claiming his authority. He's the creator. Why? Because God sanctified the seventh day. So therefore, Jesus is God. That's another proof text, by the way, for the deity of Christ. But the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's not something that's an obligation, like something you should feel, oh man, I I'm the this I was made to to basically observe the Sabbath. No, the Sabbath was de- was designed for you to spend a whole day with God. Just imagine that. The the creator of the universe, in his wisdom and his mercy, structured time so that we would have a day of rest to spend with him, to remember the grace that he's shown us to remember the freedom that we have to rest, to rejuvenate, to enjoy his creation. All these wonderful things are fulfilled in Christ. And again, in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Okay, let's take a look at a couple of these others that Christ says. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophet or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. That's a pretty famous one. Okay, and of course, Romans 3, verse 31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So, look, again, people get legalistic about this, or people get universalist about this. And you're like, oh, I don't have to really obey the law. It's not for me anymore as a Christian. It was nailed to the cross. No, it wasn't. The law was not nailed to the cross. Sin was nailed to the cross. The law is forever. It's just how you're being evaluated. Imagine if a CEO of a really, and this is like a failed concept but or a failed analogy, but just go with it. Imagine a CEO of a company dedicated an hour with you to, or a day even for you to like pick his brain or pick her brain and you didn't take them up on their offer. Imagine how that person would feel, right? That person would say, wow, you don't really care about my expertise. You don't care about spending time with me, right? One of, it's very clear that one of God's love languages is time. And being able to spend time with him is a joy. It's a way for us to rejuvenate our bodies, our minds, our souls, and, and grow in our faith. And people, again, it's a stumbling block for people. They either go the legalistic route. You got to do certain things. You have to be like the Jews where you don't consume any electricity or whatever. 
Otherwise, it's a sin, and they're obsessed with that. Or you're the other direction, which, oh, it's nailed to the cross. We don't have to do that anymore. Well, I got news for you. The, the Sabbath is the fourth commandment. Unless you're looking at the Catholic commandments, they, it's the third commandment. We'll get into that a little bit later. But the Sabbath is the fourth commandment. The Sabbath is the fourth commandment, and it's a moral law. The moral law is something that is forever. So there's civil laws. There are certain traditions that were you know, part of the temple period. Those got done away with. The sacrificial system is done. Jesus was the final sacrifice. Yes, that system is done away with. It was just a type for his life. But the moral law is separate from that. Those ceremonial laws were ceremonial laws. The moral law, like do not steal, do not covet, do not kill, you know, don't use the Lord's name in vain. Those are moral commandments on how to live a life. Love, remember the two golden commandments, love your neighbors yourself and love God with all your heart, your mind, your soul. That's the entire law. Well, part of loving God with your whole heart and your whole mind, your whole soul is observing the Sabbath, keeping it holy, just as God kept it holy. It's a test of faith, right? Who do you obey? Do you obey man, man's traditions, or do you obey God? Who do you trust for rest and for provision? Do you think you need to work seven days of the week or do your own pleasure when you should be resting and, and remembering who keeps you alive, who gives you all the good things in the world? That's really important. You know, can you spend a whole day with God? Some people, I know that for me in the beginning, it was tough to do that. And it still is a challenge because of the world we live in. We're constantly connected. And I think that's by design to get you to be enslaved 24-7, just like the Egyptians enslaved the Hebrews. It's the same thing. Ecclesiastics says nothing new under the sun, and it's true. This world has not really changed because Satan is at the helm. Now, Christ is the one that's truly king, but Satan is, is basically doing his worst right now, and the people in power worship the devil, and so that's ultimately the problem. But this is about a test of faith. The Sabbath is a test of faith. It says it's a test of your discernment, it's a test of your understanding, and it's not just some law that got nailed to the cross. It's a moral commandment. It's for your own good. The Sabbath was made for man so that you could be better. We're being conformed to the image of Christ. Remember that. And part of that is being completely obedient to God. Was Christ obeying God fully? Absolutely. Did he observe the Sabbath? Yes. Did the apostles observe the Sabbath? Yes. We'll get into that. I want to take a quick note on holidays and traditions. Eastern Orthodox, which I used to be, Catholics, you know, those types of denominations have basically recreated the sacrificial system that the Jews had with feast days, saints days, fasting days on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you know, various, you know, some days you can eat fish, some day, you know, it's, it's a whole thing, Lent, 40-day fast. This is nonsense. And I really encourage you to listen because... I used to be in that system. I went to Catholic schools all my life. I was very much in that system. And it's a works-based system. It's not at all on grace. You know, Colossians 2.16, let, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or new moon or a Sabbath. Okay, so it's, it's not going through the rat race of feast days and things that saves you. It's the grace of God that saves you. 
by believing in Jesus and accepting the gospel. The laws and the sacrificial system was a type, it was all typology for what Christ came to do on earth. Christ fulfilled everything in the prophets and the law. Now, the church today, these churches, these these giant churches, there are almost 2 billion people, they claim that, you know, things like, well, if it's a sin to do certain things, if you, if you meet, eat meat on Friday or if you wash your clothes on Sunday, that's a sin. Or if you didn't observe this day, you know, you can't eat cheese on St. Andrew's Day or whatever. This is nonsense. You're obeying man if you're doing these things. God never said these things. God did give you a day of rest in the Ten Commandments, and he commands that. But he doesn't command you what to eat on what day and what to eat on another day and so on. This is nonsense. This is created by man. And people have gotten so caught up in this system. I used to be caught up in it too. When I was little, I would fast for like 40 days. Not without food, but you know, not eating animal products and all that stuff. It's, it's nonsense. I'm not saying fasting is bad. You can fast if you want to. But this sense of obligation and this whole sacrificial system that's come back through these, through these holidays to make people think that they need to do this in order to be saved, this is a deception. And it's about, again, claiming obedience because the devil wants to be obeyed. It's, the last system on earth will be a system that is like a lamb but speaks like a dragon. What does that mean? It's going to look like Christianity, but it's going to <laughs> speak like you-know-who. So the Sabbath is a moral commandment. If I do my laundry on Sunday or if I eat meat on Friday, that's not a moral issue. If I know that the Sabbath is on, let's say, Saturday, asterisk, but if the Sabbath is on Saturday and I refuse to give one day out of the week to the Lord because I don't think I need to celebrate it, then I'm in the wrong. That is a sin because you're breaking one of the commandments. Now, of course, we have grace. We have pardon. That's the beauty of grace. But ask yourself this. If you're a Christian and you have a stealing problem and you refuse to address it, how genuine is your faith? Well, stealing is one of the commandments, and so is keeping the Sabbath. And ultimately, we have to look at that. It's not a comfortable thing, but we have to look at that. So either way, if you're you're stuck in one of these systems, Eastern Orthodoxy, Catholicism. Remember that true sin is obeying God's, true sin is disobeying God's laws. What did, what did God say? Well, he gave us the Ten Commandments. Treat others as you want to be treated and honor God with all your whole heart and your whole soul and your whole mind. So if you're disobeying one of those, which is very easy to do, then sure. But if you're eating meat on Friday or you know not choosing to fast or you know, doing whatever, doing your laundry on Sunday. These things are, they're not moral issues. So get out of that sacrificial system and find the true gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of being saved by grace, the gospel that says we're bought for a price, so work out your salvation with fear and trembling in the sense of really value what you've been given, while on the other hand reminds you that you're righteous in God's eyes because of Jesus' blood. So that's the dance of life to me, man. But in Mark 7, chapter 7, I want to go over a a scene where Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. It's pretty famous. He rebukes them over tradition and law. This is a good example of what we're talking about. So let's just jump to it. Verse 10. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. 
But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. So what's this about? Well, korban was a process where people could give, you know, things that they were that were theirs or, you know, rightfully their parents, if they had to give them to their parents, they could give them to the temple. And that way they could escape having to basically, you know, give it to their parents or honor their parents. So if they hated their father and mother, which is a commandment that, you know, you should not do that or otherwise you'll die. If they hated their father and mother, they could get revenge on them and give it to the temple and look good in front of people, look very pious, but really they're dishonoring their father and their mother. That's what Jesus is calling them out on. So he's calling them out on this, you know, superficial piousness where they're using legal little tricks in laws to override God's law. Okay? This is the same thing that's happening today. <coughs> Excuse me. It's the same thing that's happening today with, with the things I just mentioned, with this whole recreation of feast days and Lent days and sacrificial days, you know, where... It's a sacrificial system. It's not a sacrificial days, but they're basically the same thing. I mean, if you believe in transubstantiation, that's a conversation I'm not even going to get into right now, but that's the sacrificial system all over again. So ultimately, the moral law is the moral law. Civil laws and ceremonial laws are not superior to the moral law. Those are done away with. Those were necessary to typify Christ. Christ came. That's it. They're done away with. The, the temple system, the sacrificial system is done. The Sabbath is a moral commandment. The civil, law, the civil laws were written by Moses. The Ten Commandments were written by God on plates of stone. Okay, so you got to think of that. Do you think the Sabbath is ever going away? No, it's not. It was ordained at the beginning of creation. Now, the question is, did Jesus and the apostles celebrate the Sabbath? Well, the answer is yes. We know that Jesus healed on the Sabbath many times. He preached on the Sabbath. And we know from Mark 2 verse 23, that he's Lord of the Sabbath, the verses we just read a couple minutes ago. But look at let's look at the apostles in a couple chapters, and let's see if they observe the Sabbath. So Acts 13 verse 14, Paul and Barnabas at Antioch. But they went out from Perga and came to Antioch in Sidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. So obviously they're keeping the Sabbath day holy. Acts 13, verse 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. Every Sabbath. Acts 13, verses 42 through 44. Now, this one's very interesting. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. This is really important because they said, hey, we need you to come back again. We don't get this. You know, come back and tell it to us. When Paul had a choice. He said, okay, I can see you Friday. I can see you Thursday. They didn't have Thursday and Friday at that time. We'll get into that. But, you know, he could have come at any day of the week. When did he choose to come? He came the next Sabbath. 
So obviously, this was a pattern in Paul's life. But let's keep going. Acts 15, verse 21. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Christians kept the Sabbath. Acts 16, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gates to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. On the Sabbath day, that's when they did their preaching, just like Christ. They observed the Sabbath. Acts 17, verse 2. And Paul went in, as was his custom, on the th- on, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. What was the custom? The Sabbath. Paul kept the Sabbath. Paul was the greatest evangelist in history. And the last one, Acts 18, verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Paul was very active on the Sabbath in the sense that he was preaching because he observed the Sabbath just like Christ did. Nowhere in the scriptures does it say that the law, the moral law, was changed or that we should stop celebrating the Sabbath. Matthew 5, verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. We have to remember that, guys. That ultimately, the law is the character of God. It's the transcript of God's character. Just just think how profound that is. It's the information that describes who God is. Is that going to go away? No, it's not. We're being conformed to the image of Christ. What does that mean? That means we're being conformed to his character. The Holy Spirit makes us want to obey the commands and do our best. Are we going to obey them perfectly? Of course not. Are we, are we saved because of our obedience? No. But we are given a new heart so that we can and want to do those things, to be like God, but to be like God, to be like Jesus. That's the way that we're being conformed. And Jesus obeyed the commandments perfectly. So you got to think about that. Especially in Revelation, again, going back to the end times topic, Revelation 14, 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Not the saints in heaven who are saint of this and saint of that, but saints means people who are believers. That's another deception. Here is a call endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. There's a lot of people who profess to have faith in Christ. Remember, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and that? There are a lot of parables about false converts. Christ talked about false converts quite a lot. People who say they're Christians, but they're not. So what does that mean? That means how do you show that you're a Christian? How do you prove to God that you that your faith, how, I should say, how do you prove to yourself? Because God doesn't need any proof from you. But how do you know that your faith is genuine? Because you want to please God. Because you want to keep the commandments. If you have a stealing problem and you're a Christian, (laughs) I mean, you should want to fix that. If you have a coveting problem, if you have a lust problem, if you have an anger problem, you should want to fix those things because your conscience is afflicting you. God reserved a day to spend time with each and every one of us. And if your conscience doesn't afflict you, that he's there waiting for you to get it, then you got to look at that. You have to look at that. So, conclusions. Sabbath is a moral commandment. Sabbath has been around since the beginning of creation. 
God himself rested on the Sabbath. Jesus and the apostles observed the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for us. It's a joy. And Christians should celebrate the Sabbath. So that's the answer to question number one. Now, question number two is, what does the Bible say about sunrise and sunset? This is actually a very important discussion because in the Sabbath-keeping community, there's this whole lunar Sabbath thing or, you know, Sabbath starts at sun, or sunset like the Jews, and that's not at all true because ultimately the Bible teaches that the day begins at sunrise. So we're going to get into this starting in Exodus. So if we go to Exodus 10, verses 12 through 13, if we look at all the plagues, I'm just going to use one of them, but verse 12, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt, the locusts, so that they can come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land and all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. So pay attention to this. When it was morning, why is this important? Because all the plagues were in the morning. Let's look at Genesis 19, verse 23, another judgment situation. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. So when did the Lord rain fire and brimstone? The sun had risen on the earth. It was the morning. All the judgments happened in the morning, the beginning of the day, not in the evening. Let's look at a couple more, though. Exodus 12, verses 10. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. This is the Passover. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. Numbers 33, verse 3. They set out from Ramses in the first month, on the 15th day of the first month, on the day after Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians. On the day after the Passover, that's when the Exodus began. And we're going to find out more and more that the day is signified by the morning. Exodus 12, verse 31. <clears throat> then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, this is Pharaoh, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. So when did this happen? This was after the the Passover event where all the firstborn were taken. And this was like midnight, sometime in the middle of the night. So that's why when number 33 says that they left on the day, this all happened at nighttime. By the time they left, it was the beginning of the next day. That was the, the day after Passover. So keep Passover until the morning. They left the day after. It's all related to the morning. Now, if we go zoom back to Genesis 1, in verse 16, God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. Now, ask yourself this. If God created the greater light to rule the day, we know that the greater light is the sun. That's pretty obvious. Why would, why would the day start with the moon? The moon is the lesser light. So it's very clear if you read the word that the sun represents the day. It's the greater light. And you wouldn't put the greater light as nighttime. That makes no sense. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was out form and void, 
and the darkness over the face of the deep. So you have all these creation narratives. They all end, uh, all the days, I mean, end in a very specific way. And they end Genesis 1-5, they end like this. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. This has tripped up a lot of people. And there's so much needless debate about this. But people have thought that this proves that you see there was evening and the morning and the first day. Meaning morning was the end of the day and evening was the beginning of the day. But actually that's totally backwards. Think about it. If God was creating, he was creating during the morning. Then there was evening, right? No more creation or slowing down. And then there was morning that signified the immediate end of the previous day. The rising of the sun, as you will continually see, signifies the end of the previous day. That's why it's written the way it's written. It's not written because evening is the beginning of the day. It makes absolutely no sense. And you'll see that it just doesn't make any sense. But let's let's do a couple more examples. John 11, verse 9. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble. Hmm, that means because the sun is out, because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, of course, he flips it there, and it's obvious he's talking about he's the light of the world. You know, he's talking about spiritual reality. But again, the sun is a typification for the re- the ultimate reality in Christ. The sun is the light of the day. It's warmth. It helps the plants grow. And if you walk in the day, which is what Jesus said, you're not going to stumble. That's a true fact. That's a physical reality. But it's a shadow. It's a type of something much more meaningful, which is that Christ is the light of the world. That if you walk in Christ, you don't stumble. That's what he's saying here. But again, what's the, what's the physical reality? That they're all agreeing to, that, that that must be true, that the day is ruled by the sun. The sun is when the day is, not when the moon is. The sun is when you do your stuff and you walk around. It's not the moon. So again, these are just Old Testament and New Testament attitudes. John 9 verse 4, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Now again, this is a spiritual reality he's talking about. But again, it's teaching to, it's basing itself on physical things that are true. You work during the day, you don't work during at night. Now compare this to the Genesis narrative. This is this is so key. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. While it is day, Christ is working, meaning while he's around, eventually he's going to be crucified. Night's going to come when no one can work. Okay, and people are going to scatter. So he's working during the day. When Christ created the world, he was working during the day. And there was evening when the work slowed down and stopped. And there was morning again when the day was fully over. That's how the day was counted. So these are cultural attitudes. I mean, look at Psalm 104, verse 22 through 23. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. So, I mean, it it seems almost too obvious to point out, but people believed that you work during the day and you rested during the evening. I mean, common sense, right? But if the day begins in the evening, 
why why would that even be that case? Why would God do that? That doesn't make any sense. All of your body wants to respond to the morning. You have energy in the morning. Your hormones are different. Your body's slowing down at night. Why would that be the way you begin the day? It doesn't make any sense. You begin with energy, and then it dies down. So this whole day starts at sunset is just nonsense, but we're going to keep going so to show you why it is the way it is so you're completely clear. Now, some sacrifices in the Old Testament were, and this is where the confusion comes in, is that they were eaten the same day they were offered, and they had to be disposed of by the morning. So, and we're going to do a caveat to this, but in Leviticus 7, chapter 7, verse 15 through 16, let's take a look at this. And the flesh of the sacrifice of this peace offerings for Thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of this offering. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. Why? Because there was another day at that point. He had to eat it completely within the day that you sacrificed it. How do you know when the day is over? When the morning came. You see how that works? But then you had other things like the Day of Atonement that were celebrated from evening to evening. So let's look at Leviticus 23, 32. It shall be to you a, a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves, meaning fasting. On the ninth day of the month, beginning of the evening, from evening to evening, shall you keep your Sabbath. Now, this is the confusion. It's not talking about the moral Sabbath here. It's talking about the Sabbath as in Sabbath and Sabbaths. It's two different things. There's the Sabbath, which is the day of rest, and there are Sabbaths, which are multiple you know, holidays or holy days. Some of these Sabbaths, like the Day of Atonement, were from evening to evening. Some of them were from morning to morning. Some of them were lunar-based, and we're going to look into that. But ultimately, these were Sabbaths. Okay, so you can't use this as a proof text to see that from evening to evening, that's your Sabbath. No, it's not. This is talking about the Day of Atonement. To be a holy day, a Sabbath of solemn rest, it will be to you, right? What's it? It is the Day of Atonement. It is referring to the Day of Atonement. It will be to you a Sabbath. It's going to be like the Sabbath where you're resting. This is how you're going to keep this Sabbath. Not the Sabbath, but the Sabbath that is typified or similar in, in this Feast of Atonement, Day of Atonement. So this is where the confusion is. And some of them were New Moon Festivals. So let's pull up a, a resource here. This is pretty cool. This is um, New Moon Feast in Hebrew. I believe this is from encyclopedia.com. Yeah. In ancient Israel, the first day of each month i.e. the day after, sorry for this ad right here, the day after the new moon was cited was a feast day with ordinances similar to those of the Sabbath with which it is linked to in several passages, in, like, for example, 2 Kings 4, verse 23. So let's look at that really quick, 2 Kings 4, verse 23. And he said, why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. And she said, all is well. So this is referencing this ancient Hebrew tradition of a new moon type of feast day that was seen as as a Sabbath, not as the Sabbath, but again, there's Sabbaths and the Sabbath. It was seen as a Sabbath, as a holiday, basically. And so it's very important to realize that these Sabbaths are not the Sabbath. And this is where the confusion is. You know, when we say evening to evening, 
celebrate the Sabbath, that's talking about the Day of Atonement. It's not talking about the moral commandment. The moral commandment is about the actual day, like the days that pass from morning to morning and celebrating it from morning to morning. It's not a holy day that has its specific ordinances. It's the day begins in the morning. That's when it, when your Sabbath begins, and it ends the next morning. It's pretty straightforward. Another thing to keep in mind is phrases like early in the day or early are very much, let me put it this way, they're used only in conjunction with the day, the morning. Okay, and I can prove it to you on several occasions because the idea that we have when we say early in the evening, I'm going to meet you early in the evening at some place. That's a modern construction because our lives run 24-7. We've changed the times and laws, right? We have everything's the, the beginning of the day is midnight. Think about that, spiritually what that means. They've changed times and laws. The, the day, according to God, begins at sunrise when the sun rises and there's light. The beginning is light. That's a spiritual, there's spiritual truths in there too because it relates to Christ. Now, what have they done? The powers that be. The beginning of the day is at midnight. The darkest time of the day. It's the opposite. Do you see how that's a satanic inversion? So, ultimately, they've changed the times and laws. And the Sabbath is one of the laws. But they've changed times as well. We live in an upside-down world where we say things like early in the evening. There's no such thing. In, in the Bible, at least, they never used the word early to refer to early in the evening. It's always early in the day. What does that mean? Because why Why is that important? Let me put it this way. The day is the first thing. It's the, the day is first, not the night. So if you say early, it must be the day that is first, not the night. So that means the Hebrews and the people in Jesus' time kept the the day from morning to morning, not evening to evening, which is nonsense. Now, it was physically, oh, actually, let me jump to this point. Let's look at the Israelites and the golden calf. This is in Exodus 32, 5 through 6. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Okay, now pay attention to this. And they rose up early the next day. Huh, interesting. Tomorrow, early the next day. So when is the day starting, according to the Hebrews? Early the next day, it's in the morning. Okay. And look at also Exodus 34, a couple chapters later, 34 verse 2. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. When did God tell him to be ready by? The morning, obviously, because God counts the day beginning in the morning. So no one shall come up to you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds or graze opposite the mountains. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. So early in the morning is when the day begins. It's not in the evening. God didn't say, come to me at midnight. <laughs> come to me when the moon comes out. Early in the morning, because that's when the day starts, according to God. Now, another thing to keep in mind is the narrative of the narratives or the testimonies of the crucifixion events, it was impossible 
for all those things to happen within three to four hours. Okay, so we know that at that time in the Middle East and Jerusalem, the sun sets around 6 p.m., 6.30. This is, there's a whole study on this. I'm just going to briefly kind of go through it. The sun sets around 6.30 p.m., okay? Jesus was crucified around 3 p.m. So if the Jews believed that the Sabbath, the day begins at sundown, as some people think, then it is physically impossible for the timeline in Luke's uh, events, the event timeline in Luke chapter 23, to have been fulfilled in that time. It's impossible. Think about the things that happened. Joseph went to Pilate to have an audience with him to get approved to take down his body. He went back to take down the body. He went to go wrap the body. I mean, this is a huge task. Wrapping a body is, I mean, especially with ointments and things, it, it is hours upon hours to do that. Okay, the women followed him. They saw where Jesus was buried. Then they went back to prepare spices and ointments. Then they rested. So if you're really honest about this, really those people were working until like two, three in the morning. Because why? Because sunrise was coming and they weren't allowed to work on the Sabbath. Jesus was crucified the day before the Sabbath on the day of preparation. He rested on the seventh day. Isn't that typologically, it was fulfilled just like God created the world and he rested on the seventh day. Jesus rested in his tomb on the seventh day and then he was resurrected on the first day. So all these things are types, man. They're types and foreshadowings of what was fulfilled in Christ. And he rested. So, but again, all those things happened. There's no way they could have happened in three hours. And let alone, they didn't want to break any more laws because they were just seen as outcasts having followed Jesus. They weren't going to be, you know, punished for, you know, following Jesus and then also breaking the Sabbath. They weren't going to do that. So you have to think. Either the Bible's wrong, or people who think that the day starts at nighttime are wrong. Okay, this is something you have to think very clearly, because those events would have never happened in three hours. It's physically impossible. And there's people who have broken this down in, in greater detail. You can look for it. But ultimately, look, Luke chapter 24. This is the resurrection. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, early dawn, remember that. You don't use early for evening. There's no such phrase in the Bible, early evening. It's only early with morning or early dawn. They went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. Look at a little bit later in verse 29. This is Jesus now. And they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening. <laughs> they didn't say it's early evening. It's toward evening. And, they, and the day is now far spent. If that's not proof that they counted the day in Jesus' time as beginning from morning to morning, I don't know what is. The day is now far spent. Why? Because it's toward evening. So wait a minute. All you people who think that the day begins at sunset, the Bible says differently. The Bible says the day is now far spent when it's toward evening. Isn't that interesting? So you have to think about this. And another example I'll give you is 2 Kings 7, 8 through 9. And when these, this is when the lepers, these lepers basically saw like a camp of some Syrians. The Syrians had run off. God had passed judgment on them. 
And these lepers kind of came and saw all the gear and stuff. And they're like, oh my gosh, let's, let's loot this stuff. Then they said to one another, this is verse 9, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning, morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. This is such an important verse. And again, all the other ones should be, have proven to you by now that the day doesn't get counted from sunset to sunset. That's a Babylonian inversion, satanic inversion. But it counts from morning to morning. That's the way God counts it. The, the sun brings hope and warmth and glory and light to our lives. Obviously, you're not worshiping the sun, but it's a type for the light and warmth and rest and hope that we have through Christ from the very beginning of creation. All these things are typo, typo, typofied, typified, if I get my words right. But this story is very interesting because ultimately they found this camp and they knew what the law was, that if the sun goes down on you and it's a new day and you didn't act, you'd be in trouble. So that's what they're talking about here. They're basically saying, look, we better get to this before the day is over. When is the day over? When the morning light comes. They counted it as morning to morning throughout the scriptures, even well into Jesus's time after his resurrection. It was always morning to morning. Were there certain Sabbaths, plural, that were from evening to evening, like the Day of Atonement? Absolutely. But that's not the Sabbath, the moral commandment. Now, we're talking about the lunar calendar. This is a big problem. And the problem is that the lunar calendar is irregular. We're going to get back to this a little bit later. But what it leads to is periods of time that are longer than seven days. Or you might have two Sabbaths within a seven-day period. Because the the loon, the loon, the moon, the moon is irregular. And so you don't get exact seven-day weeks. So this is a real big problem because Scripture tells us that it's very important to God that we have a six-to-one ratio. That's, that's the biblical standard, and I can prove it to you. Starting in Exodus 16, 26. Six days you shall gather it. Remember, this is before Mount Sinai. But on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. Exodus 20, verses 9 through 11. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Exodus 31, verse 17. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. 6 to 1. Exodus 23, verse 12. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that you, your ox, and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. How beautiful. Exodus 24, 16, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the clouds. Six to one ratio on the seventh day. <clears throat> Excuse me, Exodus 31, 15. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Serious stuff. Exodus 34, 21, six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest, you shall rest. Exodus 35, verse 2, six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, 
holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. Leviticus 23, verse 2, or sorry, verse 3. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. Deuteronomy 5, verses 12 through 14. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. As the Lord your God commanded you, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Luke 13. Now all those verses, excuse me, all those verses were Old Testament. What about New Testament? Well, there's proof of that too. Luke 13, verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue, ignorant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. And of course, Christ rebukes him for that. But there's a very telling thing here. The telling thing is that they observed all these verses that we just went through. Six days you shall work, one day you shall rest. Okay? It was six to one. It wasn't the loot, you know, he didn't say, well, based on the moon, that's when you should come and get healed. No. Six days you shall work, one day you shall rest. It was about six to one. If that's not obvious, I mean, that, that's pretty obvious. And so the question you have to ask yourself is, if the system I'm following causes me to break this pattern, even though, you know, people who are Sabbatarians or lunar Sabbatarians, they claim to be, you know, so Old Testament, they know all about the Old Testament. Well, look again. Look again. The day is from sunrise to sunrise. All the times the Sabbath is commanded, it's commanded six to one ratio. That's what's important to God. Six days you shall work, one day you shall rest. Not, you know, work for eight days and then rest for one day and then four days later you have another Sabbath because the moon was doing something. I mean, that's not how it works. If your system breaks this ratio, which the lunar lunar calendar does because the moon is irregular, then you're not doing it right. Now, Let's talk about calendar times. <laughs> this is where the this is where the complexity of this topic really gets a lot of people and they don't study enough and I certainly didn't study enough and I had to study and realize that that there is no continued continuity of the days from Jesus' time to our time. A lot of people don't realize that. There's no continuity. And people think, well, we have the Gregorian calendar that was in 1582 and when that was you know, converted over, we we didn't lose any days, right? We lost some dates from the Julian calendar, but we didn't lose any days. And that's true at the time we didn't lose any days. But does it mean we can count back to Jesus' time and say, oh, you know, the Sabbath is Saturday or the Sabbath is Tuesday? Which which Sabbath, which day was the Sabbath on? And the the answer is that we don't know. We don't know, and I can prove it to you, because what happened was, we have to talk about the Julian calendar first. So the Julian calendar came around in 46 BC. And, you know, Rome was trying to standardize their calendars. They had an eight-day calendar. You can read all about it. We're going to read a little bit about it in a second. They had an eight-day calendar, a seven-day calendar, and this these two calendars were active at the same time, so it was very confusing. But let's take a look at it. There's a great resource. Uh, I'm going to pull it up here in a second. It's a great resource called We Have Why We Have a Seven Day Week 
and the origin of the names of the days of the week. Now, this is a secular article. It's not, you know, it has some things that I don't agree with, but it's a good resource. Now, I'm going to link it. So I'm just going to read this article to you. It's a research article. We'll read a couple sections. Two of the earliest known civilizations to use a seven-day week were the Babylonians and the Jews. The Babylonians marked time with lunar months, and it is thought by many scholars that this is why they chose a seven-day week, though direct evidence of this being why they did is scant. That being said, each lunar month was made up of several different cycles. On the first day, the first visible crescent appeared. On approximately the 7th, the waxing half-moon could be seen. On approximately the 14th, the full moon, or on approximately the 21st, the waning half-moon, and on approximately the 28th, the last visible crescent. As you can see, each notable cycle is made up of about seven days, hence the seven-day week. So far, so good. Now, the lunar Sabbatarians will say, oh, gosh, you know, the, the moon is the, you know, God's timepiece. That's the only way you can go back to the seven-day week of creation. Well, not really. You'll notice as I use the word approximate a lot in here, this is because the moon phases don't line up perfectly with this schedule, of course. As such, as far back as the 6th century BC, which incidentally is also around the time the Jews were captives in Babylon, that's why I said this is a Babylonian inversion, it's picked up from Babylon, the Babylonians would sometimes have three seven-day weeks followed by an eight to nine week, presumably to resynchronize the start and end of the weeks to match the phase of the moon. This is exactly what we're talking about. So it's a Babylonian thing the Jews picked up, and that's what that's why they observe it today, because the Talmud is the Babylonian Talmud. It's a Babylonian religion. This has nothing to do with Hebrewism. But there's another part of this article that I want you to, to check out. So we're going to read this. Whatever the case, the ancient Romans during the Republic did not use a seven-day week, but rather went with eight days. One eighth day of the every week was set aside as a shopping day where people would buy and sell things, particularly buying food supplies for the following week. Rather than labeling the days of the week with actual names, at this time the Romans labeled them with letters A through H. You might think of this as that the H was always the shopping day, but this isn't correct. You see, the calendar year did not divide evenly by eight. Thus, the day of the week that was the day to go shopping changed every year, but they still often referred to days based on its proximity to the shopping day. For reasons not entirely clear, within a century after the introduction of the Julian calendar in 46 BC, the eight-day week started to diminish in popularity in favor of the seven-day week. The full switch was not sudden, happening over centuries, and for a time, as the seven-day week grew in popularity, both the seven- and eight-day weeks were used in Rome simultaneously, which is when Jesus was alive, plus the Hebrew calendars. Finally, after the popularity of the eight-day week diminished to almost nothing, Constantine, the first Christian Roman emperor, made the seven-day week official in AD 321. We're going to get more into that. Due to the influence of both Roman Christianity, this has stuck in most regions of the world ever since. So now, what about the origin of the names of the days of the week? Ancient Mesopotamian astrologers assigned each day the name of a god. The Greeks later called these days Theon Hemerai, or if that's all Greek to you, days of the gods. And it goes on, you know, it talks about the, the pantheon being, and you'll see archaeological evidence of this, the pantheon being evidence of, you know, the, the Roman... Greco-Roman system, which again, if you read Daniel, it's not a surprise because those are the beasts that came one after the other. The Roman Empire followed the Greek Empire. But our days, what? so 
where do we take from this? Well, let's let's look at one more thing really quick. This is a parapegma or a uh, a stick calendar. Now, if you're listening to this, you can look up look up the word stick calendar from the Baths of Titus on Google, and you'll see a bunch of images for this stick calendar. It's basically a a primitive type of calendar that that they used to keep track of what day it's in, but it has seven days, okay? And they're all named after the different gods. You know, Saturn is Saturday. Monday, I think, is for the moon. You know, I don't remember all of them, but it's all there. And seven days. So what is, why is this important with the other thing that we just read? Why is all this important? Well, first off, Saturday was the first day of the week for the Romans, okay? Saturday was the first day of the week, and when Constantine, okay, so Saturday was the first day of the week. They had an eight-day calendar, a seven-day calendar. The Hebrews had their own calendar, and remember that the Hebrews also had their calendar pre-exilic times, which is a little more pure, and then after their Babylonian exile, a lot of things came into play, like the lunar stuff and, you know, a lot of these traditions that are still today with the Talmud. So there's a lot of stuff going on with times and laws. Then when Constantine solidified the week that basically we use today, he changed the first day to Sunday. So the order of the days changed yet again. So why all this is important? Well, as much as I would love to say that we have absolute certainty that Saturday is the Sabbath, we don't have certainty that Saturday is the Sabbath. Our Saturday is the Sabbath. Because you can't trade before 321 AD, there was no standardized calendar. The Romans were using eight days and seven days. So there's no match between our days today. And like you couldn't say you can't you it's called proleptic use of a calendar, meaning you're you're backtracking using our current calendar. You can't do that. You can't go beyond, you know, say, oh God created the world on a Tuesday. It doesn't work that way. Time doesn't work that way because there was no standardized calendar up until 321. Before that, it was, you know, multiple calendars going on. So there was no way to say, oh, well, you know, Jesus observed the Sabbath. And for the Romans, that was, you know, the third day of the week, which changed the fourth day of the week in 320. I mean, there's no way to calculate it. If you find somebody that's managed to do that calculation or some way to correlate all these days, I'd be curious. But... I don't think it's possible because we don't have the evidence as to do that. We can date years, but it's impossible to date days and to link them together because the calendars are different. So there's a lot going on, okay? Constantine made his own week with with all this. Some Christians were persecuted, by the way, and we're going to get into this. Where They were cur- persecuted for keeping the Sabbath or for not obeying Sunday laws for not going with the government. Some Christians kept the new day as a sign of allegiance, so they didn't want to get persecuted. And some Christians kept both days. Now, the Christians who kept Saturday were warned not to Judaize, not to be like the Jews, otherwise they'll be shut out from Christ. This is very important because the Jews living at the time were forced into this new calendar. They say, well... We're not gonna, you know, we're not gonna pay homage to pagan Rome, so we're just gonna pick Saturday since that's the new seventh day of the week. 
So in AD 321, Saturday became the seventh day of the week. And the Jews said, we're going to pick Saturday as our day of Sabbath, that we're celebrating our Sabbath. They made the change. And the Romans said that Sunday was the day of rest. But you see, even the Jews picking Saturday, they weren't aligning with their, they were forced into that calendar is the point. So when we say that Saturday is the Sabbath, you're actually just picking what the Jews picked. The Jews who rejected Jesus, <laughs> you're just picking what they picked and aligning it. So it's the lesser of two evils, basically, is my point. We don't have a way to determine what the true Sabbath day was. Compared to our weeks today, we don't know what that day was. In fact, if you try to look up a day when Jesus was crucified in AD 31, and I'm not going to get into why I chose that date, but he was crucified in AD 31, Nisan 14 is a Tuesday. But we know that Jesus died on a Friday before the Sabbath, or <laughs> the day before the Sabbath. He, is, he died on the sixth day. He rested on the seventh day. Let's put it that way. But if you use a calendar proleptically, meaning you're backtracking, it'll tell you that Nisan 14, which is Passover, is a Tuesday. So that doesn't make any sense. Well, yeah, because you can't proleptically use a calendar that far back. You see, it gives you these weird dates. So conclusion is we're never going to know what day today in our weekly system is the true Sabbath. God rested on the seventh day of the week. He told us to have a six to one ratio. Our current tradition and most Christians, they believe Sunday is the day of rest. Adventists believe Saturday is the day of rest. Messianics believe Saturday is the day of rest. But Saturday itself is a Roman invention. Saturday was made up by the Romans, and the Jews agreed to it and just standardized everything from there. So it's the lesser of two evils. It's the most biblical, <laughs> I guess, in some sense, but it's really not 100% biblical either. So that's why this is complicated. Our current tradition is Roman no matter how you slice it. So the question is, is the Sabbath Saturday or Sunday or the new moon or something else? Well, it's not the new moon because you have the six to one ratio you need to keep so that the whole lunar thing is a Babylonian invention. And obviously it's not aligned with scripture because God considers the beginning of the day with sunrise. The day starts in the morning, ends in the evening. We are children of light, not of darkness. It's now, it's not Sunday, okay, so it's morning to morning. It's not the lunar, okay, and it's not Sunday either because Sunday was a Roman invention. It was a day that was commanded as the day of rest to be specifically for, for a day of rest and worship of the sun initially, and then it was adopted more and more into Christianity. But again, that we're going to get more into that as to why you should avoid thinking of Sunday as the day of rest, as the Sabbath. Saturday was the other day. It was the seventh day of, of the new week. So it wasn't commanded that Saturday was the day of rest. So it's less, it's the lesser of two evils, right? You're picking, you're still picking a day that was invented by Romans. It's the seventh day. But it wasn't a day that was decreed by a man to be the day of rest. See how that makes sense? So ultimately, we're picking the seventh day of the week that we've grown up with. It's the, it's the true seventh day of the week, which is Saturday, not Sunday, and that's the day of rest. Saturday was never commanded by any human being, any man 
to be a day of rest like Sunday was. And so Saturday is basically why we celebrate the Sabbath. But technically, it's not even Saturday. No way to know. It's no way to know. And ultimately, does that mean that we shouldn't keep the Sabbath? No. It means don't obey Rome's power grab for worship, as you'll soon see, because we're going to get into a lot of quotes just now on what it means to worship and and not just, I mean, you can worship God on every day, but it's to rest on Sunday, to think of Sunday as the Sabbath, as the seventh day of the week, as the day of rest, which is the, what they're trying to push. And I don't, I don't think God will keep it against us that we can't find out what the biblical Sabbath was, the day that Adam rested on, or the day that Jesus taught and preached. It's the seventh day of the week. What matters is the six to one ratio. Six days you shall work, one day you shall rest. And that you're earnestly trying to please God. And if you know the history of Sunday, you know that Sunday can't be the day that you devote that day to God. And that's what we're getting into. So let's jump into a couple of quotes here from just a bunch of different sources. But let's start with, this is a paper called Sunday, How Come... How Came It Into the Christian Church by F.L. Sharp. And again, links for this is going to be in the um, comments, or I should say the, the description of this. But here we go. On the venerable day of the sun, let the magistrates and all the people residing in cities rest, and a lot of all the workshops closed. In the country, however, persons engaged in agriculture may freely and lawfully continue their pursuits because it often happens that another day is not so suitable for grain growing or for vine planting, lest by neglecting the proper moment for such operations, the bounty of heaven should be lost. This is um, Constantine's decree. Concerning this decree, Dr. Schaff, who wrote about this from History of Christian Church, says, he joined the observance, or rather forbade the public desecration of Sunday. Interesting, keep that in mind, especially with the Pope these days not under the name of Sabbatum, the Sabbath, or Dies Domini, Day of the Lord, but under its old astrological and heathen title, Dies Solis, Day of the Sun, familiar to all his subjects so that the law was as applicable to the worshippers of Hercules, Apollo, and Mithras as to the Christians. Following close upon this, in the year AD 325, Pope Sylvester authoritatively bestowed upon the first day of the week the title, The Lord's Day. Then, A.D. 338, Eusebius, the court bishop of Constantine, wrote all things whatsoever that it was the duty to do on the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week. We, Constantine and the other bishops, have transferred to the Lord's day, which is the first day of the week, as more appropriately belonging to it. Interesting, huh? They've transferred it to the Lord's day. Who, do you have power to transfer the day of rest to a different day? Very interesting, huh? There's a lot more here too, but you can look into it because it's a very, this whole book actually, the um, History of the Christian Church, Volume 3, a lot of good stuff in there, but let's keep going. Who changed the Sabbath to Sunday? This is another article. We're just going to go down, and links for this will be in the description. The watering down of the Sabbath in the first 300 years. The Christians during the apostolic era from 35 to 100 A.D., kept the Sabbath on the designated seventh day of the week. For the first 300 years of Christian history, when the Roman emperors regarded themselves as gods, Christianity became an illegal religion, 
and God's people were scattered abroad. Judaism, however, was regarded at that time as legal, as long as they obeyed Roman laws. Thus, during the apostolic era, Christians found it convenient to let the Roman authorities think of them as Jews, which gained them legitimacy with the Roman government. However, when the Jews rebelled against Rome, the Romans put down their rebellion by, restore, by destroying Jerusalem in AD 70, and again in AD 135. Obviously, the Roman government's suppression of the Jews made it increasingly uncomfortable for the Christians to be thought of as Jewish. At that time, Sunday was the rest day of the Roman Empire, whose religion was Mithraism, or its sun worship. Since Sabbath observance is visible to others, some Christians in the early 2nd century sought to distance themselves from Judaism by observing a different day, thus blending in to the society around them. So I want you to keep all these things in mind because this is, this is really painting the picture of what's been happening and what happened. Again, history is, um, you know, it's a mystery and you have to really study your history, especially when it comes to something like the Sabbath. But let's keep going. This is the uh, Convert's Catechism. Yes, the Convert's Catechism of the Catholic Doctrine. Page 52 of this PDF. Let's see what's on here. This is page 50 of the of the Convert's Catechism, but I want you to take a look first, actually, at page 49. What is the second commandment? The second commandment to us is to use the name of God reverently. Okay, great. What is the second commandment? And the third commandment, wait a minute. The third commandment is the Sabbath. The third commandment is, remember thou, to keep holy the Sabbath day. But the third commandment is actually, the, the Sabbath is actually the fourth commandment. So the Catholics have a different set of commandments. Do you know why? Because they got rid of the third commandment that says don't make any graven images. And they split the last two commandments of don't covet into don't covet your neighbor's wife and don't covet your neighbor's goods. So they changed the laws. Hmm, interesting, huh? Changed timing laws. Keeps coming up. But let's look at this. Page 50, which is the Sabbath day? Answer, Saturday is the Sabbath day. Why do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Answer, we observe Sunday instead of Saturday because the Catholic Church and the Council of Laodicea 336, transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. Why did the Catholic Church substitute Sunday for Saturday? The church substituted Sunday for Saturday because Christ rose from the dead on Sunday, and they use all these seemingly biblical reasons. But ask yourself this, does anybody have authority to change God's moral laws? No. The answer should be obvious. God is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He alone can dictate what we do or don't do. If he wanted to change, <clears throat> excuse me, darn voice is always kicking my butt. If he wanted to change the day, then he would. So you have to ask yourself, who do I obey when I believe that Sunday is a day of rest? Let's look at a couple more. You may read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and you will not find a single line authorizing the sanctification of Sunday. The scriptures enforce the religious observance of Saturday. James Cardinal Gibbons, The Faith of Our Fathers. The Church of Rome, after changing the day of rest from the Jewish Sabbath or seventh day of the week to the first, made the third commandment refer, again, the third, it's the fourth commandment, referred to Sunday 
as the day to be kept holy as the Lord's Day, Catholic Encyclopedia. Let's look at some more. Notes from the Catholic Church. Catholic Record, September 1st, 1923. Now, in the matter of Sabbath observance, the Protestant rule of faith is utterly unable to explain the substitution of the Christian Sunday for the Jewish Saturday. It has been changed. The Bible still teaches that the Sabbath or Saturday should be kept holy. Now, again, we, we know that we can't track what day it is, but we just go with Saturday. It's the closest we can get. Here we go. There is no authority in the New Testament for the substitution of Sunday for Saturday. Surely it's an important matter. It stands there in the Bible as one of the Ten Commandments of God. Yes, it does. At least they're honest. There is no authority in the Bible for abrogating this commandment or for transferring its observance to another day of the week. Catholic Record, September 1st, 1923. Here's a couple good ones. Not the creator of the universe in Genesis 2, 1 verse 3, but the Catholic Church can claim the honor of having granted man a pause to his work every seven days. Man, I just, I want to vomit just even reading that. S.C. Mosna, Storia della Domenica, 1969, pages 366 to 67. Reason and common sense demand the acceptance of one or the other of these alternatives, either Protestantism and the keeping of Holy of Saturday, or Catholicity and the keeping Holy of Sunday. Compromise is impossible. The Catholic Mirror, December 1893. The Sunday is purely a creation of the Catholic Church. American Catholic Quarterly Review. Sunday, it is a law of the Catholic Church alone. American Sentinel. It's a Catholic uh, journal. Those who follow the Bible as their guide, the Israelites and the Seventh-day Adventists, have the exclusive weight of evidence on their side. Whilst the biblical Protestants has not a word in self-defense of the substitution of Sunday for Saturday. Catholic Mirror, September 1893. And Rome's challenge, final final quote here, just to put the nail in the coffin. Why do Protestants keep Sunday? Most Christians assume that Sunday is the biblically approved day of worship. The Roman Catholic Church protests that it transferred Christian worship from the biblical Sabbath Saturday to Sunday. And that to try to argue that the change was made in the, in the Bible is both dishonest and a denial of the Catholic authority. If Protestantism wants to base its teachings only on the Bible, it should worship on Saturday. So, what do you take from that? What you take is that when you keep Sunday holy, when you keep Sunday as the day of rest, you can worship God on any day of the week, but when you are made to believe that Sunday is holy, that Sunday is a day of rest. You're obeying an institution that has claimed itself to be God. And to to be able to say that its mark of authority is to transfer the solemnity of, of the Sabbath from one day to another, that's its mark of authority. So you're obeying that institution, whether you're a Protestant or Catholic or whatever, it's all the same when it comes to this topic question is, do you obey man or do you obey God? Now, we proved through archaeology that it's impossible to figure out what day was the true Sabbath, the biblical Sabbath. That's been lost. And that even Saturday is basically an invented day. But at the very least, you're not agreeing to holding a day holy 
that has been made expressly so just to move from one day to another. You're not agreeing to that. When you keep Saturday, you're not agreeing to keeping Sunday because that's what the church said, or that's what the Pope said, or that's what Constantine said. So this is the thing. Don't be legalist about it. Don't be legalist about keeping Saturday. But at the same time, realize that that's the best we can do. And it's all about keeping six to one work to work, work to rest ratio. That's what it's important to God. Sunrise to sunrise. Work to rest, six to one ratio. Now, what about Revelation 1 verse 10? When he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Some say that this is already a sign that Christians were celebrating the Lord's Day. and all. Yeah, okay. We know that Christians got together on the first day of the week. Look at Acts 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them. Okay, so were Christians getting together on the first day of the week? Yeah. They were having fellowship. They were doing church stuff. They were baking bread. <clears throat> breaking bread. But... The first day of the week is not the Sabbath. It's not the day of rest. You can worship God on any day of the week. You can get together with believers on any day of the week. They just happen to do that as a tradition because that's when Christ rose from the grave. But Christ did not make a new Sabbath day on the first day of the week by him rising from the dead. The Sabbath is still the seventh day of the week because God wants you to remember him creating, excuse me, him creating the world. He wants you to remember him creating the world and giving you rest and him resting. That's what it's all about. It's about connecting to God. We don't have any authority to change times and laws. Absolutely not. So these are my final thoughts. You know, if you've been with me so far, if you're still here, praise God. It's been a long study, but hopefully you've learned something and the thing that you need to come to terms with is that you've been lied to. You've been lied to, first off, about needing to keep the Sabbath as a Christian. You don't need to do that. Grace nailed it to the cross. That's not true. Sabbath is a moral commandment for our own good so that we can prosper in our journey of sanctification with Christ. It's a time to connect to him. It's time to refresh. So you've been lied to. To you, you have been lied about needing to keep the Sabbath. That's the first thing to come to terms with. And the second thing to come to terms with is you've been lied that Sunday is the day of rest. Sunday is not the day of rest. Saturday is the day of rest. That's the best we can do. Because if you believe that Sunday is the day of rest and it's the Sabbath, you are listening to man. You're listening to Rome. You're listening to all the emperors and popes who thought themselves to be God. Are you willing to change? That's the question. The Sabbath is a moral commandment. We have to try to obey the commandments. We're not going to be perfect at it. We're going to fail every Sabbath that comes around. I always, you know, fail at something, whether social media or people text me or whatever. You know, I get busy with something. I'm trying not to. I earnestly try not to. I'm going to share some strategies with you. But it's the trying that matters. Sabbath is not Sunday. The day starts in the morning, six to one ratio. Saturday is the best bet that we can have. It's, it's the most biblical, so quote unquote. But even Saturday is not that biblical when you really want to get technical about it. So we pick Saturday and we go with it. God is going to be merciful. We, we're under grace. We don't have to obey perfectly. That's the whole point. 
even though we don't know the actual day it was, we're under grace. And that's the beauty of grace, that we can at least devote Saturday as a day to spend with the Lord, the seventh day of the week that we're in of the world, as a remembrance of him as the creator, as of him as the liberator. And remember 1 Corinthians 10, 31. It's a great verse. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Amen. As long as our hearts want to please God, as long as our motivations are in the right place, God is merciful and he'll show you the way. I refuse to obey on Sunday as the day of rest. I refuse to take that into my heart, knowing the history. You have to ask yourself that, knowing the history, knowing all those quotes I just read to you, knowing all the things that happened. We haven't even gotten to the end times, but all those Sunday laws, all those forced worships, all the Inquisition, all the, the, the sun worship that happened and that moved into that. You look at Catholicism today, it's still a sun-worshiping religion. Sorry if you're Catholic and you're hearing this, but it's the truth. I was in that system for many years of my life, and I'm glad I came out of it. Thank, thanks be to God for opening my eyes. Now, I don't agree with Adventists that people who are worshiping on Sunday right now are taking the mark of the beast. I don't agree with that. However, I believe that it could be a issue in the end times we're living. I think it's very plausible. I don't know, but I think it's very plausible because I think it's the best candidate for worshiping the beast and for having a mark between your forehead or your hands, meaning what you believe or what you do to get out of the consequences, as we reviewed in the beginning. So it's a, it's a big possibility. And we know that from Exodus thirty-one thirteen that it's a sign. You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you should keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. So true. You know, Israel was a type for the church. The church is the new Israel. It's the Israel of God. We, the body of Christ, are the fulfillment of that. And so just as how the Sabbath reminded the Israelites how they were freed from Egypt, that was a physical shadow of the fulfillment in Christ, how we as the bride of Christ, the church, the true believers, the continuation of the Old Testament, that's what Christianity is. It's not Judaism. Judaism is a rebellion to Christianity. It wasn't founded and officialized until many centuries afterward by the people who rejected Christ. Christianity is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. And through that, on the Sabbath, we're reminded how we're freed from the slavery of sin, how he's the one who sanctifies us. Amen. Jesus is the one who sanctifies us through his blood. It's a sign of freedom from slavery, from the slavery of sin. It's a sign of resting in God's grace that he's going to provide for you. Remember, just because we're under grace, it doesn't mean that the law goes away. If you're pardoned for something, it doesn't mean you can go commit it again in the courtroom. Now, of course, we have constant pardon. So we're always making mistakes and God's pardoning them because we're under grace. But it doesn't mean the law is going away. God's character doesn't change. The law is God's character. And, you know, the grace that we have through Christ is fulfilled in the law. It fulfills the law, I should say. It allows us to practice the law 
and be imperfect at it. We're not being evaluated by the law. We're being evaluated by grace. But you're still commanded to practice the law. You still have to treat others as you want to be treated. You still have to honor your parents. You still have to not steal. You still have to not commit adultery. I mean, you're still called to do those things. And we're being conformed to the image of Christ. Remember, his Christ is God. If the law is God's character, we're being conformed to God's character, then yeah, the law is not going anywhere. We'll have all of eternity to, to celebrate that. But some strategies to celebrate. We're wrapping this up. Just a couple things. You know, look, Sabbath, going to Sabbath is not just going to church because you can go to church and then watch the football game and just do your thing for the rest of the day. Go out, drink, whatever. You know, it's about prayer, maybe fasting if that's your thing, watching edifying content, learning, studying the Bible, going out in nature, resting, volunteering, preaching the gospel, evangelizing, doing things that are edifying in your relationship to God and taking away the things that aren't. I try to not spend money, go out, watch secular entertainment, play games, whatever, working out, housework, try to, you know, do anything that lives for myself. You know, ultimately, I just remember the words of Isaiah 58, verse 13 through 14. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own way, or seeking your own pleasure, or or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So ultimately, guys, you know, when we can see the delight in the Sabbath, and it truly is a delight, to me it's my favorite day of the week, looking forward to the end of the week when I can rest, recuperate, regenerate, get back into my faith, with all the craziness that happens in the world, I can't live without it. And I want to share that joy with you because it truly is a delight. Now, certain things are really good to do. Again, like preaching, helping the poor, you know, doing deliverance ministry, if that's your thing. Whatever it is that you do, evangelizing, ultimately we're called, each of us, with different gifts. And that's something to do on the Sabbath. There are some things that you have to do, right? Like, You know, we live in a very busy world. We're very connected to things. Some things we have to do. And there's grace for that. In Luke 13, verse 14 through 17, Christ was freeing somebody from being oppressed. And of course, the Pharisees were not too far and they criticized him for it. And he criticized them back. He says, you know, you guys are hypocrites. Do not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it. Meaning, there are things that you have to do on the Sabbath. There's no way you can get around that. And so, of course, those things are fine. Don't be legalist about it. But just avoid the big things. You know, avoid putting your mind and your focus elsewhere. Try to put your mind and your focus on God. The Sabbath is fasting from the world. That's truly what it is. It's fasting from the world. And, you know, if you have to work on Saturday, find another day. Or, at the least... Try to fit time into your day and honor God as much as possible. Put your mind on God that day. Whether it's incorporating more Bible into your day, into your breaks, praying, whatever it is, if you absolutely can't change your work schedule. And remember Exodus 16, verse 29. This is such a good verse. We went over this earlier. 
See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So he gives you bread for two days. And this is a a powerful thing to end on because, you know, for the Hebrew Israelites, the concept in the ancient world of God providing for you for the next day that you didn't have to work on the day was profound. Nobody had a Sabbath rest. But the Hebrews did because that was the sign that God had their back. He's the provider. And so we have to, and what's the point? Why did God get angry with them later in that verse? Because they didn't trust him. They went out to go find food. There was no food because they didn't trust. And so the Sabbath is about trust. It's about trusting that God will provide for you, trusting in his mercy, trusting in his grace, trusting in the perfect work of Christ. It's all about trust. The Sabbath is an absolutely absolute delight and i hope that you've learned something in this presentation i know it's been long i wanted to put it all into one presentation because otherwise some of these things get lost if they're in separate videos but ultimately look i hope you've learned something i hope that it's encouraged you to look at this from a different perspective i hope that if you are planning to celebrate the sabbath you don't turn legalist into it and you also you know don't go the way of seeing that Sunday is the holy day because it's not. And that may very well become a problem in the near future. We don't know. But it's better to know and have discernment and be aware of the moving pieces than to be caught off guard. So I hope that this has blessed you. I hope that you have a great rest of your day, your week. And maybe this next Saturday that's coming up, you can dedicate it to the Lord and spend some time with him. So until next time, God bless and we'll see you.